Hi, welcome to More Like the Reentry Podcast, a podcast about offender reentry reform and advocacy. I'm your host, Vankivia Gardner. Thank you for joining me today. Before we get into today's episode, I want to remind all of our fabulous subscribers um, to share this uh, podcast with your friends, share it with your family. If you know people that are interested in re-entry and want to learn more this is definitely the space for them um if you know people that don't know anything and you think that they need to be aware of these uh, issues concerns this is also the space for them and if you want to learn more about us you can also follow us on instagram at more life the re-entry podcast and i'm just so thankful for the subscribers we do have for the people that listen um we more life is just really grateful but for today's episode we're going to jump right into it and we're going to be talking um, with an organization, um, the Phoenix Center, and I'm going to give you guys a little bit of insight of what the Phoenix Center is. So the Phoenix Center is a central, it's in central Illinois. It's an LGBTQ community health center that provides housing for LGBTQ unhoused folks, as well as housing for people living with HIV. They also provide public, public health interventions. Um, so this is like harm reduction services, legal and medical advocacy, and a plethora of other different things um, for this particular community. Um, so to represent this community today, Miss Rachel King Johnson will be here with us to discuss the Phoenix Center, discuss her role in the Phoenix Center, um, and how this pertains and relates to people that may be involved in the carceral system. Uh, Miss Rachel is the director of the clinical outreach program there, as well as is she the bleeding heart for the underdog, an advocate for the underserved, and a harm reductionist and counselor. Um, so Miss Rachel, we are so grateful to have you on here today to talk about all these things, um, and we look forward to what you're gonna bring to us today. Thank you so much for having me. It's such a unique podcast, and I think um, what you're doing is so important. So thank you for what you're doing. And thank you. Thank you. Um, so I guess before we get into, uh, you know, actually what the Phoenix Center is, Miss Rachel, I always like to start a little bit about my guest, um, because this is just as much as this is about the center, this is about you too. Do you care to share with us a little bit more of your background, kind of what got you interested in working with people involved in the carceral system, people of the LGBTQ community? Um, what What has that experience been like for you? So um, I come from a family of helpers. So my dad is a social worker. My mom's a nurse practitioner. Uh, my stepdad is a minister and teacher. And then my stepmom's a nurse. So everybody is helpers. Um, so I always kind of grew up knowing that I wanted to help people. And I was always taught to be kind and treat other people the way that I wanted to be treated. And so I have grown up with this deep need to fight against injustice. And so I would say that's kind of um, what started that. And then... Um, had a background um, academia wise, just in sociology. Um, and then I am a person with lived experience with substance use disorder. So I'm in long-term recovery from drugs and alcohol. Um, and I was able to obtain my certification to be a drug and alcohol counselor. So now I use my lived experience to help others, um, primarily in my role that I'm in um, now as director of clinical outreach. So, um, 
it's been said that our past can become our greatest asset. And that's so true. Yeah, that is very true. And it's always really great to see people um, when they have, you know, reached recovery or regardless of what, whatever the circumstances look like, if you have lived experience of being incarcerated, use their experience to empower other people that may be in similar situations. So, um, so grateful and for what you are doing and the work that you're doing. Um, I guess. So I know you work at the Phoenix Center. Um, you've been doing some work there. Do you care to share with us a little bit about what the Phoenix Center is? Um, I know I gave like a description of it, but do you care to give a little bit more in depth so our audience can understand? Sure. So it started out initially as a group in 2001 of just um, some kids getting together to have support for one another, and it grew from there. Um, so now we offer housing for LGBTQ folks, as well as people that are living with HIV. Um, we also just um, opened up a satellite office in Quincy, offering um, support groups to the community, as well as our harm reduction services. Um, and so we're really just focused on expanding and reaching people, really meeting people where they're at in all walks of their lives in terms of um, their sexual orientation, where they're out at in their coming out process. Um, there's a lot of work right now in rural communities to make sure that they have um, groups for parents and groups for youth support groups. Um, and that's something that we also offer at the center here is we offer um, support groups for youth. Um, we also have a closet called Lisa's Closet, um, which is, um, it's really neat. So it's named after our executive director, her wife passed away from cancer. And so this closet is named after her and it's a way to um, have clothing available to folks who need it that are transitioning. Um, so that they can present the way that they want to and feel confident. Um, and we also offer binders for trans men that are transitioning. Um, so that's just a little bit of what we do. And then we also have um, a store. Um, and so people can come in and kind of get some cool pride swag. Um, and that's at our administrative office that we just opened two blocks down um, that also has housing available. So affordable apartments for LGBTQ folks. So a lot with that. Um, and then also just public health wise. So here at the center every day, um, Monday through Friday, we're doing HIV testing, hep C testing, STI testing, and a lot of navigation in terms of if somebody does come up positive for HIV or they want a referral to treatment or um, they're having a mental health crisis, we do a lot of referrals to care and work a lot with different social service agencies. Um, and then my focus is uh, working with two other clinical outreach specialists um, to meet the needs of 15 counties in Illinois. Um, and so we will go to those counties um, and we will bring harm reduction supplies and testing to those folks because there's a lot of resource deserts in those rural areas and that makes it difficult for people to get what they need. So we just bring it to them. Um, so that's a little bit about what, what I do. It sounds like in the past 22 years, cause you said 2001, right? Yes. Um, this center has expanded a lot. There, there's a lot being offered here for people that have HIV or people that are in the LGBTQ community. Um, and that that's so great to hear. I really like the the Lisa's Closet. Um, 
I think that's such an amazing thing because a lot of times the clauses that I typically hear of are like business related and seeing that one of getting that pride swag to show up in your true authenticity is just so amazing to me. So um, can you, um, yeah, so I just really like that. Sorry. So I know y'all are located in central Illinois. I'm not from Illinois. Where is central Illinois? What's what's in that hub? So the hub of central Illinois. So let me get my map out here. So to the Chicago folks, we are southern Illinois. <laughs> to me, I'm mid-central Illinois. Um, so uh, that's Springfield, Illinois. So just kind of smack dab in the middle. Um, and in terms of grants too. So when you operate with grants, you know, there's different regions for different grants. So sometimes it gets confusing. Um, but yeah, that's kind of where we're at is just smack dab in the middle. So we go all the way to Quincy. So Adams County and then as far as I would say Macon County right now. So as far as Decatur and then as far down South as like Montgomery and Lacoupin County is kind of where we're at. So, um, and if we don't cover a county, we'll either refer them to a syringe service program that's close to them or we'll mail them supplies or we try not to ever leave people hanging. Yeah, I think I did see that on the uh, website that you all ship. So you will ship out the supplies that people need to them, even if they're not in the county. Correct. So we get a lot of requests for condoms and lube and Narcan and other supplies um, online because people are sometimes afraid maybe to go into the store and ask for them or don't have access to them. So we just ship it to them. Okay. Um, and before we get like into talking a little bit more about um, the services that are offered, I, I do want to ask you this question of, because um, this is always a, a topic of discussion, because it's, it's a topic of discussion right now, just in the carceral world too, of just how do we describe these individuals that we are uh, interacting with or talking about? Um, do you care to share with us like some appropriate terminology that should be used when we're talking about LGBTQ, when we're talking about people who identify as trans? Um, do you care to do that for us? Sure. So I think it's always good to just ask the person um, what pronouns they use. So like at the beginning of a conversation, you know, you can say if you're unsure, you can just introduce yourself and say, hey, I'm so and so my pronouns are she, her or they, them. What are your pronouns? And then the more that we normalize that, um, the more that it'll just become part of, you know, and we won't have to make assumptions. We'll already know going into the conversation. And so we'll know how to approach it that way. Um, in terms of a uh, transgender man or a transgender woman, um, I think it can be difficult for people to feel like they can ask questions because they don't want to offend others. Um, but, you know, it is our job maybe as allies to do a little bit of research. You know, it's not necessarily the trans person's job to educate. I think that's what a lot of people fall back on is, well, how am I supposed to know? They should be telling me. And it's like, there's a way to have that dialogue to ask respectful questions and not. And so just simply stating what our, pro, you know, what your pronouns are when you introduce is just a, a way to know how to safely go about that. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. Um, I know person-centered language is like an evolving thing right now of 
in a lot of different areas. Um, so I always think that that too is a, a safe thing for people if you are unsure. Like, also do your research, ask them. Um, but person-centered language um, is also something that is very evolving right now. Um, it definitely is. And it's always, you always wanna go to what the person wants to be referred by. And that goes with a lot of different things. So um, for instance, there's a person in the community here that made it clear that they just wanna be called a woman. They don't want to be called a trans woman. They are a woman. That's what they want to be, you know? And so knowing that, that was helpful for me because then I'm like, okay, that makes sense to me. We can't have this, um, you know, exclusion. There's a lot of exclusion in terms of activism, sometimes even within LGB community where there's exclusion amongst lesbian, gay, bisexual folks from the trans people. Um, and so just seeing more intersectionality is really important. Yeah, I definitely agree there too. Um, and, you know, I'm wondering, you you talked about some of the services before, um, and we've talked about a little bit about the population that y'all cater to. Um, can you, Do you care to explain to us the significance of these services and why they're offered to this population? Like give us some understanding of, you know, why is it these things that we're offering? What is so significant about them or why are they such a need? Yeah, so I mean, housing housing first is so important. So when we provide housing for folks, um, we see that all these other things can start to come into place. You know, it's so hard for people to um, get an ID and go get a job when they don't have a roof over their head. So if we're able to provide somebody that's living with HIV or that's LGBTQ that doesn't feel safe in a homeless shelter, um, that is at risk for sexual violence in a shelter or on the street, um, if we can provide that, um, it goes such a long way for folks. I mean, there are people that come back 10, 15 years after they've had a diagnosis. And they'll tell the director of clinical services here, you know, I remember when you told me that I was positive, you know, I remember when you helped me get on medication. Um, so the housing is a bridge to all of these other services. And then when folks come in for testing, the same thing. So providing harm reduction services is not just providing syringes or smoking, safer smoking supplies and snorting supplies. Um, it's also reducing the spread of communicable diseases by um, educating our participants to say, now that you've met us, now that you know that we exist, um, you never have to reuse anything ever again. Um, and when we do that, we keep people alive. Um, people don't get HIV. Uh, they, it doesn't develop into AIDS. Um, people may not contract hep C, which then will help them not to get cirrhosis or liver cancer on down the line. Um, and so all of these things help to just keep our people alive because what we see is there's this gap in between um, people who actively use drugs and people who maybe enter into recovery um, to where they may not get the services that they need because there are so many prerequisites to care. And when there are prerequisites to care, really what could be replaced there would be a barrier to care all of those things, you know, that are barriers to care. And so when we provide low barrier shelter, that's what we're talking about. We reduce all those barriers and we meet people where they're at. 
um, which is really what the Phoenix Center does and what harm reduction does is it says there's no judgment here, there's no strings attached. Um, yes, there are harms associated with, you know, risky sexual behavior or um, IV drug use. Let's talk about ways to be safer about them. Um, you know, I've talked with my dad about this before. He's a social worker in the field. And he said that a doctor told him that, you know, just because you're meeting somebody where they're at and there's a dinosaur behind them, you're not going to say, you're not going to ignore the dinosaur. You know, you're going to say, hey, watch out, that's behind you. Um, so there is accountability in harm reduction. You know, harm reduction is not just anything goes. I think a lot of folks think that. Um, but to tie this into reentry a little bit, um, harm reduction in our services are so essential because if you don't have housing and harm reduction when you come out of jail, um, you die. That's that's what we see happens a lot. Um, people's risk to go back into the system increases when they don't have that support that they need. Um, and which is why podcasts like this that have the dialogue about what are those support systems that are needed when they come out. Um, you know, because as an abolitionist, it's for me, let's abolish the carceral system. Um, we know that it doesn't work. We know that when people enter into jail, their chances to come back, the recidivism just skyrockets. So it's interesting to see the culture in local county jails because you'll hear them say, oh, so-and-so's back again. When the data shows that, hey, you arrested them again, and guess what? They're going to come back again. Um, so it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy and it's like, oh, it's not working. We wonder why. Um, so, you know, let's talk about no entry to jail. So if we have people that are using drugs um, and they have a possession charge, to me, that's a victimless crime. You know, if somebody has substance use disorder um, or they have something on them, I, I think decriminalization is the way to go. If somebody isn't in jail, they're going to stay alive. Um, there was recently a man who passed away in a county jail due to opioid withdrawal um, because he didn't get the medical care that he needed. And had he not been painted with a target on his back by local law enforcement because of a syringe that was littered in a bathroom, he would still be alive today. And that's directly related to stigma as well. You know, when we talk about how stigma kills people, it's that kind of stuff that kills people. So if he had never entered into the jail for a possession charge, which by the way, since he was in our program, was protected by law, um, you know, then we wouldn't have to deal with all those other services. Cause it's like, you see somebody enter into the system, they have substance use disorder, um, they go on probation, um, a stipulation of their probation is that they cannot use drugs. So because they're chaotic with their drug use, um, they are now required to go to treatment. So let's say they complete treatment, but they relapse or they use again. Well, now they violated their probation. So now probation has them on a petition to revoke their probation. And so now the state's attorney says, yep, you're going, you're going to prison. And so now somebody that could have avoided a felony charge for um, drugs that they possess because of a substance use disorder, 
Um, now they have a felony on their record. So now they are coming out of jail or they're coming out of prison essentially um, because now they've been sentenced. So let's say they're sentenced to four years and they do two. So now they've lost two years of their life. So let's say they had a child at home. That child's now a toddler. You know, they're, they were unable to provide for their family. Um, they lost custody of their child. Their, their spouse filed for divorce. These are just all situations that can happen because somebody was caught with, with drugs. Um, and so people don't think of that domino effect of how that can devastate, not just a person, but it perpetuates um, generational trauma. Generational trauma that was based on historical trauma. Because if we go back to why the carceral system exists to begin with, and we look at the sheriff's badge and we compare it to the slave patrol badge, they are merely identical. And that is why we know <laughs> it is the same system cloaked in a different design and it does not work. So on the front end, we know that there's all this money that's spent sending somebody to prison, you know, incarcerating them. And then on the back end, now this person's trying to find a job, but they are a felon. So it's challenging for them to find a job. And now they don't have work experience for two years. So the temp agency won't take them because they haven't technically worked for two years, but wait, they have worked for two years. Guess who they worked for? The prison. And guess how much they made? Not very much. Talk about slave labor within a slave system. So it is just mind boggling to me when, um, when we see these, these things exist and we don't challenge them. And it becomes so heartbreaking at times when we have to exist within these systems that are so, so broken. Um, and one time I was in a jail and I was trying to get somebody, somebody out of jail and I was advocating and I was going on to the jail administrator about it. And he turned to me and he goes, Rachel, you're a bleeding heart. And um, that was my next tattoo <laughs> that I got because I just, I, you know, um, this is a system that doesn't make sense. Um, it it destroys so many people and it causes so much trauma. And then we expect people after sitting in this kind of long timeout period to come out and be okay and have learned their lesson. Um, and I think that people can be okay and quote unquote, learn a lesson, you know, in, in jail and prison. I've heard people say that it has saved their life. They've made the most of it, but what if they never had to go to jail and prison to begin with? Like, what, what would that look like? And the way I think it would look like is it would look like people having autonomy um, with their own bodies, you know, in terms of what they put into them, because we know that people use drugs for a multitude of reasons. So we also know people are going to change when it makes sense to them. 
So doing the court mandated treatment and uh, probation that says you have to be abstinent, that's not necessarily helpful. Um, if we implemented and we have more money for harm reduction services and we could steer folks that way, um, people that utilize harm reduction services are five times more likely to enter treatment. You know, my buddy, Carl, the first person that I screened in a county jail, he ended up serving some time and he got out of prison. His dad passed away. So he was dealing with a lot of grief, but he, he struggled with his use, but he always wanted to be there for people. So he always provided um, syringes to people and Narcan, and he was all about saving lives. He had a very good heart, he was loyal to his family. And um, I remember I took him to treatment and I, I knew that he wanted to get better. He, he wanted to get better. Things were chaotic and um, he overdosed and died in December. And I blame, I blame the system for that. Um, because I feel if he hadn't gone to prison and if he would have been given those coping skills to navigate through his father's grief. Um, and I also think if we had a treatment complex that was a little bit more understanding of people exploring ambivalence, you know, not as being resistant to change, but as process, as part of the change process, then I also think we would see him alive as well. Um, and then the same with this other man that died in, in the jail due to opioid withdrawal. Those are things that light a fire under my ass to say, we can't fix this system that's broken. We have to abolish this system. And since we have to abolish this system, let's rescue everybody that gets out. Let's get them everything that they need. Let's get the funding that we need. And that means implementing the best practices that we can. Overdose prevention centers. We know that they work. There's never been a death at an overdose prevention center. And when people are incarcerated that have opioid use disorder or alcohol use disorder or anxiolytic use disorder, so benzodiazepine use, all of those put people at extreme risk for fatal withdrawal. Now with opioid use disorder specifically, people would say, you know, you can't die from opioid withdrawal, but Brian Downs in Morgan County Jail in Jacksonville, Illinois, died from opioid withdrawal um, because he vomited a hundred times blood and he died on that jail floor. And so he, that's, you know, what happens. So seeing substance use disorder as the public health issue that it is, instead of the criminal justice issue that it has been, um, seeing, I think, more case management for folks that are coming out, um, more recovery coaching, harm reduction coaching, implemented when people get out. Um, so when I worked as a case manager, having case management services for six months for somebody 
as well as a recovery coach, it was amazing to see how much could be done with that person. I mean, these are things where this, you know, folks, even if they've been incarcerated for two years, that's a lifetime. And to get out and not have the skills to maybe make a doctor's appointment or having anxiety and not knowing how to use the bus system or how to get your ID, all of those barriers that make it more difficult to access a job. And going back to the withdrawal component, when tolerance is lowered, it also increases chance for fatal overdose. So when people are incarcerated and then they're brought out, we see that a lot. Um, there's a lot of funding right now for medication assisted treatment in the jails, um, which would be an amazing thing if it could be implemented. But once again, I wish it didn't have to be implemented there. I wish it could be implemented outside of the jail. Um, but it is a life-saving thing because if we can keep somebody's tolerance at bay at a certain level, once they are released, we know that we can keep them alive. Yeah, and I know you've talked a lot about um, how substance use disorders really can impact people. Um, and I imagine for the population that you're working with, people um, that are LGBTQ plus, um, that live with HIV and also have a history with incarceration or the justice system in general, that it has maybe even more barriers that they may encounter. Um, yeah, it, even more barriers that they may be up against because of all of these intersecting things that may be going, intersecting identities that are playing a role. So true with the intersection of identities. So, um, you know, you take somebody that is living with HIV, um, that's on the street, that has a history of incarceration, all of those things could essentially become barriers to care, barriers to living for them. Um, and it becomes that much difficult for them to navigate um, not just the carceral system, but just the, the, the capitalistic system that we have, you know, everything that we have, um, trying to make a living. Um, a lot of times folks who may be LGBTQ that are on the street, um, they may turn to sex work, you know, so turning to sex work that might put them more at risk for HIV. Um, and then living with HIV, you face so much stigma. So facing that stigma, facing um, the fear of, is this a life sentence? How do I access care? How do I take medication? That's where we come in. Um, but it definitely makes it more difficult. Um, and it makes it more difficult to access care when you don't have the social capital and you don't have um, the privilege to um, do certain things. And people take that for granted. When you have a lot of social capital, when you were privileged, um, when you refuse to look that there may have been lives lived other ways. Um, yeah. <laughs> so... Yeah, and it seems like the Phoenix Center uh, really steps in to try to uh, minimize some of these barriers and provide care and accessibility um, for people 
in these groups because it can be, as we're talking about it right now, really difficult to get other places. And if you're living in rural communities, may not be available or as accessible. Um, and that's where you see the Phoenix Center stepping in to provide these services in a lot of a lot of different ways. Um, harm reduction, harm reduction, um, housing, um, even just medical and legal assistance. Yes, doing a lot of advocacy, um, a lot of walking. We like to say this a lot, walking alongside somebody in their journey. So trying not to necessarily do things for somebody, but um, lifting up their voice and empowering them to make those choices for themselves so that they can become self-sufficient on their own. Um, because a lot of these folks have been marginalized for so long, um, they forget that they have a voice. And so allowing them to have the platform to have the voice, I don't necessarily need to be the voice for them. They have a voice. So let's, you know, let them, let's let them share it. Um, one component of advocacy that we do in terms of within the legal system is um, our harm reduction program, all of our supplies that our folks get are protected by law. Um, and they're given a participant card that they can keep in their wallet that actually has a copy of the law on the back. Um, but rural law enforcement, particularly, um, they have ripped the card up in people's faces. Um, they have laughed at people. Majority of our folks who show that to law enforcement will still get arrested. Um, and when they get arrested, they will be booked. They will sometimes have to sit in jail for weeks, sometimes months. Usually if they're in our program and we work closely with them, they're able to get a hold of us and we're able to contact their public defender or their family um, and sometimes the state's attorney to then educate them on this law and why this person cannot be held in their jail. Um, and so then the case is usually dismissed. However, that person has now lost time, um, they have probably been traumatized due to um, being arrested. You know, that fear of, am I going to lose my job? Where are my kids going to go? Um, am I going to go through withdrawal in the jail? So all those things could have been avoided had there been education and implementation of this law that protects our participants. But due to stigma and not, you know, not knowing about syringe services, it happens a lot. So that's a lot of the legal advocacy that we do. Do you do you care to educate us on that law? Because I'm I'm not familiar with what you're referring to. Okay, so it's Illinois Public Act 101-0356. It states that participants of a syringe exchange program should not be charged with possession of supplies obtained from or intended to be returned to the program, including needles and other paraphernalia that contains residual amounts of a controlled substance. So basically if they get anything from our program, so if they get a bubble, which is a pipe used to smoke meth, um, a stem, which is used to smoke crack cocaine, a snorting kit or syringes, sharps container, Narcan, they cannot be charged with that, even if there's residual amounts in it. So what a lot of counties have been doing, particularly in Western Illinois, we, we saw this happening in Adams County, um, where they were charging people with possession of meth, less than five grams, 
when really this was a person that had a bubble pipe with a small residual amount. So they have essentially been sending people to prison for years um, with, with what should have been a, a misdemeanor charge um, with a felony charge with possession of meth less than five. So um, myself and the other clinical outreach specialists over in Quincy at our satellite office have been doing a lot of educating and advocacy um, for our participants with a lot of success within their court system um, to get all of those cases dismissed. But yet again, time lost uh, and goes to show um, stigma and also overcharging by the state's attorney, which is what we know that that state's attorneys do a lot. Thank you for sharing that because like that's something that I was unfamiliar with. And I, I really hate that that has been the experience, especially when we have a law like this in place and people um, are essentially not even paying attention to it. And they're disrupting and um, yeah, disrupting people's lives um, and making them a lot worse than what they already could be dealing with. Um, I really do. I really, man, I see why that would like, that would like, that lights a fire under me of like, what is happening here? Why? I'm sorry. Could go on a well, tangent. <laughs> you know, you know, what would be crazy is when I would have to advocate and testify on behalf of somebody who would be in jail saying, I have a treatment bed available for this person. Please let them go to treatment and then have the judge and the state's attorney deny somebody's right to medical care um, for a you know medical disorder that they have, substance use disorder that I, a counselor, have assessed and um, have diagnosed this person with. Um, can you imagine any other disorder that you can't go to the hospital and seek care for? Hey, you have a diabetic emergency. No, we're, we're gonna refuse insulin. So it definitely becomes frustrating, but it's, I'm so passionate about it. And um, we forget that people who use drugs, um, people who are transgender, uh, people who are marginalized, you know, they go through all of these experiences that the, the average person does not. And so if we have any social capital, if we have any privilege, you know, it, it is our job to elevate their voices and empower them and do whatever we can to set them up for success. Um, however, they deem that for them. You know, I see so much of that within the court system where they have a rubric for how they decide success looks for somebody. And if we know that recovery is unique to each individual, we know that somebody's reentry into society from prison, everybody's is going to look different and there's going to be setbacks. There's going to be um, things that you run into and there has to be taken into account that there's this power dynamic and there's this power imbalance between systems that are set up to assist folks coming out of the system um, and we need to look at it as building power with people and not power over. Um, people that have been incarcerated are used to being told what to do, when to do it, what's allowed, what's not. 
Um, so why don't we have a conversation with them and, and build power with them and not have it over them? Um, because if we can encourage these folks to be introspective and look within for what they want, they've had a lot of time to sit. And if we listen, they'll tell us exactly what they want and exactly what they need. Yes, I definitely agree. And I really like um, what you just said. I think that there's so much truth and you even alluded to it earlier of like building power with people and not over them, but also walking with people on their journey um, and not telling them what to do. Because like you said, for so long, these people have been told what to do. Stand here, do this, do that. And it's it, a part of advocacy is giving people their voices back, uh, letting them have that personal autonomy over their life. Um, and I just think that that's that's such a great thing. And one of the, the biggest things that we strive for here in more life too is just like, you know, autonomy. This is your journey. Um, I'm just here to, like you said, to help facilitate you through it. Um, you know, so I really do appreciate that perspective. I'm hoping that cash bail will get, you know, done away with, as we know that it's the law. So um, within about a month, they're supposed to be, um, well, we don't know exactly when, um, but there should be a ruling on the Pretrial Fairness Act. It's basically in the hands of the Supreme Court right now. Um, and then what would happen is we would get hopefully about 30 days for courts to implement this. So then they would have sentencings and hearings to say, does this person need to be in jail or not? Which would be amazing because we would see a lot of overcrowding stop. Um, we would see people um, allowed to return back to their homes, um, get medications that they need, social services that they need, their families. Um, because we know that cash bail is, is a very outdated system. And we know that we just need people out in the world. Which also means that there, there's going to be a need for the funding, the social services, because when these people are released, um, they're going to need the help. And that's when people, uh, organizations like um, the Phoenix Center are available to do that for people. Um, but we're going to need more than just the Phoenix Center. It's like they're in central Illinois. We're going to need places like the Phoenix Center in in different areas to support these individuals because we don't know where they're going back to. Um, but social services and funding, we, we're going to have to show up so we can better support these individuals. Definitely. And it'll probably take a lot of advocating in terms of legal stuff, um, bills and things that'll probably need to be passed just because it's so difficult for people with a record to get housing mm -hmm. um, and find, you know, halfway house, transitional living, even to get on a, on a lease somewhere if they have a background can be challenged or even finding a place to just, hey, where can, where will someone take me? Do I have a long lost aunt that I can be released to? Because otherwise I've seen people released to homeless shelters mm -hmm. and those folks usually don't last very long out on the street in terms of they usually are picked up within a short amount of time and go back into the system. Yeah. So there's a big role for us here. Um, and, you know, I'm wondering, you know, thinking about the Phoenix center, uh, 
and I know that y'all provide a lot. How, um, what support are y'all seeking from the community right now? Um, if that makes sense. I think support wise, I mean, really just community buy-in. So community buy-in in terms of what we're doing for housing for the LGBTQ community and why that is such a need for that community specifically, um, as well as community buy-in for harm reduction services and why that is such a need, you know, why we need to keep people alive, why we need hepatitis C testing, why we need HIV testing. So Basically, I think community buy-in will help with more funding from uh, grants that say, oh, wow, they're doing the work, they're saving lives, we need to keep this going. Are there any practical things that y'all need um, as far as a, an organization? Yeah, I would say, um, you know, people can check us out on Facebook if they want. So it's the... Ours is specifically like the Springfield Harm Reduction Initiative, Phoenix to you, which is really long, sorry. Um, but that's specifically for the harm reduction outreach that we do. Otherwise, we have just another regular Facebook page, which is just the Phoenix Center, and it's in Springfield, Illinois. Um, we also have an Instagram, which is Phoenix to like the number you. Um, and we always post our schedule where we'll be at in Illinois with our delivery, um, along with sometimes just different um, like uplifting quotes or things that remind people that use drugs that they're not alone and that they deserve dignity and respect and love. Um, so checking those out and giving those a follow. And then also if they check that out, there might be a link to volunteer if they want to ever help and make harm reduction kits. We do it every other Saturday. Um, so that's kind of a fun task to do, just kind of chip, chat with some people, get some kits together. Um, and then another thing too, is to think about where Narcan might be needed in your community. Um, do you see a high need area where there's a lot of overdose happening or a lot of drug use happening? It may not be a good, or it may not be a bad idea um, to carry Narcan or to think about having an outdoor or indoor Narcan box. Um, we do provide those. So that's something if you're interested in, you can get a hold of us. If for some reason the region's not covered, we can always find somebody who provides that service where you're located. Um, and then also, if you need supplies, if you need supplies, harm reduction supplies, Narcan, education, training, consulting, um, we are here for you to, to do that. Um, so yeah, that's what we're here to do. Yeah, I love that. Um, and a lot of great opportunities for people to get involved, um, but also just a lot of resources um, and supplies if your community needs them. If you're not in the central, if you're not in the central Illinois area, um, they like we just talked about, they ship. Um, if you know places that and you, like you said, are high in overdose, just reaching out. Um, and I'll make sure I'll put, I put all the social media stuff that you just mentioned and even the website um, in the description box so people can have access to it so they can see the work that y'all are doing. Um, Buy-in is so important. People, a lot of people don't understand how this stuff works. Um, they don't understand the purpose or the utility of it. Um, but like you said, getting people to understand, going and visiting their website, uh, looking into their trainings can increase buy-in, increase funding, increase opportunities. There's so many 
um, outcomes that we are looking for by doing this. So I appreciate you for sharing that with us. Okay, so a few more things before I go that I wanted to talk on a little bit. So one of them was about um, safe supply. So we hear that thrown around a lot. Um, people sometimes don't understand what it means, but basically the way that I would describe it is if you go to a grocery store and you turn over a piece of food or you want to buy alcohol, you know the content that's in there. You know, okay, this hard cider is 5% alcohol. When you go on the street to buy your drug, you do not know what's in there. You do not know the potency. You do not know the amount. And so because of that, um, that's why we see so many drug overdoses because it's just so unpredictable with what you're getting. Um, with fentanyl, it creates hot spots in the drug. So it becomes kind of weighted and clumpy. So if the drug's not cut up evenly, um, somebody could have one half of one thing, one half of another, one has fentanyl, one doesn't and somebody overdoses. Um, we see that in like pills. So pressed pills, primarily maybe that look like Xanax bought off the street could have fentanyl in it, which is why it's good to crush all those up. Um, and then just, it, it's very good to be trained on how to use Narcan. If you don't know how to use Narcan, please, please get trained and carry it. Um, carry fentanyl test strips, carry benzo test strips. These are other drug checking measures that you can use um, to check your drugs to see what's in them. And when you know what's in them, it will tell you how you want to proceed. Do you want to throw away the drug? Are you going to use less of it? Are you going to make sure that you have a friend with you? Um, and so pushing towards the safe supply um, is really the only way out of this at this point, because what's happened is we had an opioid epidemic. Okay. First it was the pills, then it was heroin. And then it was like crackdown on the heroin. And then now it's crackdown on the fentanyl. And so now we're seeing designer opioids called nidazines that are in our opioid supply that are 40 times stronger than fentanyl. So we're seeing things like that. We're seeing things like xylazine, which is an animal tranquilizer. Um, which has been found in the Springfield, Illinois um, heroin dope supply. Um, technically, anything that is bought as heroin anymore is not just heroin, if heroin at all. Um, usually one of the main ingredients is going to be fentanyl, um, but there's also going to be a lot of other fillers in it. Um, and the xylazine is concerning because it lowers people's blood pressure. It causes abscesses. Um, and Narcan reverses opioid overdoses. So it gets opioids off that opioid receptor. Um, but with xylazine, Narcan will not uh, reverse that. Um, and so that's just why it's scary and why we know that um, further criminalizing and scheduling drugs does not work. It only pushes the drug supply further underground. So until we get a safe supply, um, until we have overdose prevention centers here, um, we will continue to check drugs and have Narcan in every community that we need. Um, drug checking services are something that we do provide. Um, we just take a small amount of a residue and we actually send it to uh, Chicago Recovery Alliance in Chicago, Illinois. They have a project called um, the Alliance for the Alliance Collaborative for Drug Checking. And uh, their person is Taylor and they are amazing. Um, they travel to festivals and all throughout the city of Chicago uh, doing drug checking in real time with FTIR and mass spectrometry 
testing. Um, and it's so essential for people to know what's in the supply. When we know what's in the supply, we can know how to proceed and, and how to respond and how to keep people alive. Um, so I just have to end with that so that people know what's in there and what services that we offer that maybe aren't talked about, maybe sound a little weird, but are life-saving. And at the end of the day, that's what we want to do is save people's lives. Um, and I think a very important thing that you touched on earlier too is that um, people are going to use substances um, and they are, and they will stop when they feel like it makes sense to them. Um, and right now our job as advocates, um, social service workers is to meet them where they are um, and make sure that they're doing it in a safe way and providing them with the resources to do that. So Ms. Rachel, I'm so thankful that you came on here to share um, all of this information. Like I've learned so much. Um, also don't know if I mentioned this at to you before, but one of the things that I'm interested in clinically is substance use disorders. So I feel like I learned a lot to myself. And so I really hope the audience was able to, you know, get something out of this, share some information with somebody, learn something new. Um, but I am so thankful for you coming on here. Thank you so much. Um, I'm really honored to be on here and I can't wait to uh, listen to more of your episodes and, and see where you go with this. Yes, thank you so much. Um, and as always, audience, thank y'all so much um, for listening every week, for subscribing. If you enjoyed this episode, please make sure you push the subscribe button at the top. Share with your friends, share with your family, um, share on your social media pages. Um, we just really want to get this information out there to people because you never know who may need it um, or who may know somebody who needs it. So thank you all so much. And then if you want to know more about More Life, the Reentry Podcast, just follow us on Instagram at More Life, the Reentry Podcast. And thank you.